The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Are you longing for a place where hope, ideas, and new ways of thinking can arise? For nearly 50 years, Omega Institute's campus in Rhinebeck, New York, has been a gathering place where world-class teachers provide innovative educational experiences that cultivate extraordinary potential in us all. Join us, either on campus or online. To learn more, visit eomega.org. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Support for this show comes from best-selling author and master energy healer Carol Tuttle and Dressing Your Truth, the effortless makeover program that unveils true, beautiful you to the world. Experience your life-changing transformation at dressingyourtruth.com. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today is musician, music critic, radio talk show host, and author, John Malkin. John is a regular contributor to Spirituality and Health Magazine, the author of two books, Sounds of Freedom, Musicians on Spirituality and Social Change, and The Only Alternative, Christian Nonviolent Peacemakers in America. He's also written numerous articles that have appeared in magazines like The Sun, Sojourners, Punk Planet, Shambhala Sun, the list goes on and on. And John is currently completing his third book, What You Think Changes How You Act. And that book deals with punk rock and spiritual anarchy, and those are going to be the topics of our conversation. So John Malkin, welcome to Essential Conversations. Thank you very much. I'm grateful to be with you today. I want to focus on what you think changes how you act. Give us some definitional kind of material on what is spiritual anarchy and even help us understand punk rock. Yes, I guess I always like combining these few realms together, social change and spirituality and music. These are realms that have been really important to me through my whole life. And I love rock and roll. I love classical music. I love music from Africa, from India. And this book, What You Think Changes How You Act, is focused primarily on punk rock. You know, there I was in the late 70s and the early 80s in high school, and this new kind of rock and roll happened that people started calling punk kind of around the same time. I was really getting into Buddhist meditation. I had been raised Jewish, and then my folks took my sister and I to learn transcendental meditation when I was pretty young still. So I had kind of this Alan Watts, Thich Nhat Hanh <laughs> influence happening just as the Sex Pistols and the Clash started happening. That's just how it happened in my life. And there's been a lot of books written about punk rock over the years. And punk roughly started in 75, 76, 77. My book, I feel, is really special, and it's been just wonderful creating it. It's special because it's exploring some of the hidden, deeper meanings and experiences of punk rock people 
their own attitudes towards life and death? How well has punk rock served them? How has their music served them and their fans in dealing with difficult emotions, in creating stronger communities, in obstructing injustice? And I've done about 150 interviews with pretty much all my favorite punk rock people, people from the band X, Henry Rollins from Black Flag, and Gang of Four, and it is their song that the working title of the book comes from. They have lyrics, What You Think Changes How You Act, which for me, that could be the title of a Thich Nhat Hanh book, really. Yeah, I mean, the Buddha says, what you think determines your behaviors. But when you have 150 interviews, do you get a sense that there's some unifying theme that, that comes out of all of this? There are some unifying themes. I guess what happens to me also is it's a great learning experience because my notion of what might be unifying gets exploded over and over again. So I'm learning all the time, you know, and I'm, I'm attracted to sort of the paradox of all of this um, paradox within spirituality, paradox of it, it's a little crazy writing a book about punk rock and spirituality, um, partly because a lot of punk rock is overtly anti-religion. Um, but what I can say is it's pretty it, like like human beings, the punk rock realm in terms of spirituality is hugely diverse. Punk rock, like I said, is famous for being anti-religion. But when I talk to people more deeply, there's been a whole movement called straight edge within punk that to me sounds like monastic living. These are folks in the 80s. It still is going on, but it was really big in the 80s and 90s. People who were determined not to use drugs and alcohol, things that cloud the mind, not to engage in conquestorial sexual activity to be vegan. And then, you know, what happens that's so fascinating to me is in a realm like punk rock or within just a spiritual practice, some folks become quite fundamentalist and decide that they have arrived at that is most wonderful for them in their life, maybe taking alcohol and drugs and, and not eating meat. They begin demanding that of others. And there's whole discussions within punk rock about this kind of fundamentalism. There's also a lot of Christian hardcore punk rock bands. There was even a Hare Krishna punk rock movement, especially in New York in the 80s with bands like um, the Cro-Mags and Shelter and 108. And so it's fascinating. It's quite diverse, which are the main things I sort of touched on. One of the main things I'm quite interested in, how it is that spiritual or music or political movements that are centered on living a free life, how they become fundamentalist and demand that everyone live a free life in the same way. How, how do free we... is that life? My guess would be that the reason punk rock may have had an anti-religion as opposed to an anti-spirituality bent was because of the constrictions that religion does place on our lives. But here you're saying that some of them actually become fundamentalist. Which brings me to another question, because I was wondering if people, I mean, my sense is that, to borrow from Eric Fromm, you, you mentioned Alan Watts, so we'll go back to that era and we'll talk about Eric Fromm for a second. 
you know, he has this book entitled Escape from Freedom. And that's where I think most people want to go. They don't want to be free. Do you think in the people you talk to who start out more in this anarchic punk rock genre and then end up in a fundamentalist Christian world, are they escaping from the freedom they originally touted? I suppose you could put it that way. Yes. The way I think about it is there's some human tendency to freedom and then there's some human tendency towards control and lawmaking and codification, which ends freedom. And there's some sort of continual rebirth that can happen moment to moment or day to day or 10 years to 10 years of rediscovering living free. That's the deep spiritual sensibility about what I'm exploring that touches every realm, punk rock or politics. There is some fear of freedom, I think. And I appreciate the quote from Eric Fromm. Laurie Anderson, wonderful musician and poet, said it's something like this, that dang, not many people really want it. So we might say that we want it, but then it takes a lot of responsibility. And that could lead us to talking about a lot of things, but I'll, I'll mention anarchism, which is broadly, it's uh, taking responsibility and putting to action the life that you would like to lead without being told by others what that should be and doing it in community and in nonviolent communication, actually. It's a fascinating thing living free and how we end up not being there quite often. Yeah, I'm trying to think of teachers who may have pointed us in this uh, toward this spiritual anarchy, though I don't think they would use the word anarchy, but certainly the word freedom. People like Krishnamurti and even Martin Buber, who just said, if you if you don't feel confronted by the divine to do being he's Jewish, you, know, you and I both come from that background or I'm still deeply involved in that. I don't know where you are with that. But you know, he said that if you don't feel personally commanded to do the practices of, of Judaism, that you don't take them on and that there is no system. And this is very much in line with Krishnamurti. There is no system that can get you to the truth with a capital D because the truth is it's already present to you. There is no Krishnamurti said there's truth is a pathless land, implying that there's no place to go to find it. It's already here. It's in you with you as you. I mean, it's it's per, it permeates everything. So all the systems, whether it's fundamentalist Christianity or any other religious system, is actually a distraction from the truth that we're trying to find and a sort of an anti-freedom discipline that will make sure we never find it. So my sense of punk was that it really tried to break with that. Am I on the right page? Yeah, absolutely. That's why you might hear punk rock people describe their music as a destruction of music. There's a system that was developed, even was flourishing in this loud craziness called rock and roll that became about commercial and making money and becoming famous. And punk came along and said, let's smash that freedom you know, people were seeing that as a freedom, but it had become commodified. They said, let's smash that and destroy it and start over. Similar, I mean, punk rock is kind of the music of no music, in a sense, 
Alan Watts talked about Buddhism being the religion of no religion. This one book when I was a teenager that really was the first one that struck me was called Wisdom of Insecurity. So this letting go into whatever is happening without clutching onto so-called as freedom. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting. I don't know how old you are, but uh, I, I'm assuming I'm much older than you are. But we have the same background from Judaism to Alan Watts. <laughs> we, we have that in common. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Similarly, though, to shift genres for a second, when you're talking about the music of no music, I thought of John Cage and his, uh, you know, four minutes, 33 seconds, which is just silence as an attempt. I mean, this is my read of the of that piece, an attempt to break down our expectations of what music is, which I think you can take into the spiritual world that this religion of no religion is an attempt to break down our expectations of religion, our expectations of spirituality, all of those things that we create and then try to stuff ourselves into in order to, again, coming back to Eric Fromm, in order to escape from freedom. It's very difficult to live with that wisdom of insecurity, to live without knowing the uncertainty is just can drive well, they drive people into fundamentalisms. They drive people into political organizations that just do the thinking for them. I mean, the Pope was just here. And I'm not saying Catholicism is like that, though it is <laughs> because it's a religion. So it does the thinking for us. But, you know, the passion that Americans have for the Pope in a country that should really say, wait a minute, we don't believe in this kind of thing, uh, that kind of hierarchy. But our country was founded on something else. But today, you know, two centuries later, I mean, we've really bought into the same thing that everyone else buys into. Somebody think for me because it's way too hard to think for myself. So here's a segue. You have an eight-year-old son. What does he think about this? Has he ever listened to punk music and go, Dad, what is this? He actually does say something like that when he hears the music. He is really musical. I play a lot of piano and hand drums around the house and he comes to performances. I do play music for him that's punk rock. I was so excited. I, I took him to see Iggy Pop about a year ago and I had never seen Iggy Pop in person. I had done some interviews with one of his original guitarists, James Williamson, and James had told me, I'm done with rock and roll, I'm working in high tech. And the next thing I knew, James is touring again with Iggy Pop and the Stooges and I took my son Bodie a year ago to see them play at a park in San Jose, California. And it was, I felt okay to do that. It was, and it wasn't going to be too loud. I thought my photograph of eight year old, uh, well, he was seven at the time, seven year old Bodie at that concert is him holding his ears. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it was a little much. What I'm hoping is that 15 years from now at a little dinner party with his friends and they're all doing the conversation of what was your first rock concert that he will appreciate being able to say Iggy Pop. <laughs> and they go, who? <laughs> Probably. What does he listen to? What does Bodie listen to? Yeah. My wife and our family go see this guru from India, Ama, 
And my the wife hugging saint or the other because there's so many yes. called Amma, the hugging saint. Yeah. Yes. And she comes. Uh, well, she she's on world tour all the time, but she comes to California. Bodhi already knows quite a few of these Sanskrit chants from India, and he loves that. He also loves, you know, rock and roll music. And, you know, actually what comes to mind, too, I took him to see Zakir Hussain, the fantastic tabla player who was playing with Shiv Kumar Sharma. And he plays the santur, like a plucked instrument, like a dulcimer, a hammered dulcimer. And their songs, you know, there was Bodhi when he was six years old. And unlike the Iggy Pop concert, he really focused and got into that. And songs by those guys are an hour long. And after the first song, you know, I, I was just, I, I travel during that kind of music. And I had the sense that Bodhi did as well. And after the first song of an hour, I turned to Bodhi and I said, what'd you think? And he said, when are they going to play the next song? <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. So uh, the punk movement, as you said, started back in the mid seventies. So it's 40 years old already. And I'm thinking when, when I look at contemporary music now, it seems to me, and maybe this has always been the case, but contemporary pop music is curated for us by corporations who really don't care the, about the quality of the music, only about the quantity of money they can make. You know, But corporations like Apple and Spotify and others really determine, and I guess you could say music publishers did this in the past, but they, they, they basically curate the music that we listen to and they'll make suggestions. If you like this, you'll, you know, you'll like this, which means you'll always stay in the same genre. Do you despair of the future of music? And do you see punk, oh, I don't know, 40 years later, maybe neo-punk coming back to, to shatter the complacency of corporate music? Yes, it seems to be an endless rebirthing cycle. And within punk, there's even punk bands that sing about all of this. There's continually new, younger bands coming along that are against commodification. Punk is even sort of famous for this notion that if you actually get good at playing your instruments or if you actually earn good money, you are no longer punk. And I've talked to a lot of punk artists about those beliefs. Some of them agree in generally with that. But I would say a lot of them, there's a bit of a conflict that's interesting and complex our culture, where no matter what realm you are attempting to live free from corporate control or commodification, people are trying to earn money to raise families. Sure. And it's a little bit of a conundrum. But there's lots of punk rock bands that definitely have lived a life that is more anarchist and do-it-yourself DIY, which punk became famous for. So can you give us two bands that we could listen to, to even albums, if, if you have something in mind? Yeah, I'll give you a few quick. Really interesting band is Bad Religion. Greg Graffin is the singer, and obviously he's overtly against corporate and commodification and modern religion that forces ideas. He's very much into science and is a professor of science and anthropology and sings about science as uh, something that is beating out religion as a way of understanding the world. Minor Threat um, is a band that hasn't existed for a long time, but Ian Mackay was in that band and created a record label called Discord that has consciously 
kept their ticket prices, their record prices low, and has attempted to live outside of a system of commodification. And probably my favorite bands are The Clash, which do not exist, of course, anymore. But they sang about political justice and contemporary political problems and put it into music and is still actually touring. They started in about 76 in England. And all these guys are a little older than me. I'm 52. So those are some ideas. All right. Well, I appreciate that. My guest today was John Malkin. His newest book is called What You Think Changes How You Act. He's working on finishing that up and getting that to press and out hopefully soon. So, John, thank you so much for being with us on Essential Conversations. I appreciate it. Support for this week's edition of Essential Conversations is provided by best-selling author and master energy healer Carol Tuttle and Dress Your Truth, the effortless makeover program that unveils the true, beautiful you to the world. Experience your life-changing transformation at dressingyourtruth.com. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Visit spiritualityhealth.com and subscribe to the magazine in either print or digital formats. Get the iTunes app so you'll never miss uh, one of these podcasts. Essential Conversations is produced by Karim Johnston, and our program coordinator is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. We spend a third of our lives sleeping and dreaming, yet most of us have no idea what goes on during that time. I'm Kelly Sullivan Walden, and as a dream expert and best-selling author, I'm here to empower you to mine the gold from your nighttime dreams. Join me on The Kelly Sullivan Walden Show, part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Until we meet again, don't take your dreams lying down.